0: Good morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us, whether in Pickering or Port Perry or Bowmanville or here in Ajax or somewhere around the world. You are welcome. A few months ago, we had a bad day in our home. I don't know if you've ever had a bad day in your family, but we did, and a fight had ensued. And during that moment, one of my daughters turned to me and said, "I'm sorry," and I was angry. And her sorry was a question, not a declaration. So I turned around and said, I don't accept it. I do not accept your apology. And I turned around to walk away. And in that moment, my daughter behind me changed her tone and said, Dad, I'm sorry. Well, I was angry. And I was like, no, no. And then I heard my daughter's voice behind me say, Dad, come on. You have to forgive me. In that moment, this is what I heard in my daughter's voice. Does my dad love me? What do I need to do to prove myself? See, you could palp- like literally palpably hear it. Fear, anxiety and panic. It's like in the moment she begged me, please forgive me. And in that moment, I saw the damage and the danger and quickly turned and forgave her and asked forgiveness. What was happening in that moment? She doubted if she was truly loved. She wondered, does the dad who says, I love you, value me? What she was really asking, which we all have at one point in our lives is, Is he still my dad and am I still his child? What must I do? I'll do anything. And there it is. In the fear of wondering if I am a child there, right there, when we wonder if love is lost, if we wonder if dad maybe doesn't really love us, we must survive. So we begin to look and plead and wander to find love if we think the father that we know will not fully give love, or he will no longer extend love, or actually he has never given it. And this is the whole struggle in the book of Galatians. Like I've been saying for week in, week out, this is written 16 years after Jesus's death and resurrection, written to a group of churches that were established, most of them non-Jews, and they had said yes to the love of God and Jesus. But now... (laughs) <laughs> false teachers come along and they declare, actually, you're not children of God yet, and you are not loved yet. They were Judaizers. One person summarized them again Not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians now must become Jewish. But Paul had already preached a gospel where he said, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus' is work alone, grace alone, faith alone in him. And the false teachers were saying, Oh, no, 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 no. Paul's right about who Jesus is, but. You need to become sacramentally Jewish. Oh, and then God will say, you are my child. Oh, and then God will say, you are my beloved. And then God will say, you are loved. And then God will say, I do forgive you. I do love you. I'll tuck you in at night. I'll sing to you. I'll accept you. In chapter four, where we're at, this is where the letter gets more personal and deeper and closer to the heart. See, Paul Paul knows what's happening As the poison of this false teaching is coursing through the veins of these churches, he knows soon, very soon, the poison will arrive at the heart and will kill. So Paul's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you begin to waver, I mean, if you begin to doubt, if you begin to wonder if you're a child of God, the beloved of the Father, you will panic. You will run, you will turn back, you will go back to the slavery you've been saved from. What is in Paul's mind as he is writing this letter through frustration and tears? Oh, it's the story of his people. It's the story of the Jews. He's thinking, for 420 years, my people had been slaves in Egypt generations lived and died under the bondage of slavery, and they took on the identity of slavery and the thinking of slavery. Slavery became their core identity. They cried out to God, free us, please, please. If you're loving, show up. God heard, sent Moses, 10 plagues, freedom. Glorious, unexpected, supernatural freedom, impossible becoming possible. But then, in the desert, while walking in freedom, the thinking of slavery was stronger than the love of God. Fear became stronger than freedom. The belief that performance was better than promise poisoned. Do you remember the great summary of this moment? I guarantee you this is what's in Paul's mind as he's writing Galatians 4. The children of God, the people of God say that if we'd only died by God's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out here in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What happened? Like I've said before, what changed? When did abuse and slavery and wholesale human trafficking and no freedom and humans treated like animals and, and even en masse death become Disney World?" When did that was the best buffet we had become true? It's when then they were alone and could trust in nothing else except God. Notice, His grace alone, His work alone, His love alone, His kindness alone. So they stopped trusting in God, and they looked everywhere, and then they looked back. Why did they go back? Why did they want to go back, I should say? I've preached it before. <clears throat> Let me say it again. I, I want to be saved, but I don't want to be. I actually want to go back to slavery. Why? Because I hate it, but I am used to it. See, if you begin to think, you don't love me, God... If you begin to think, well, maybe you're not a good father, God. If you begin to think, well, you're not going to provide for me, then this is what kicks in for every single one of us. If our dad doesn't show up and do all those things, then I need to become self-sufficient so I can survive. Oh, I hate slavery. But while I'm being abused, at least I understand it, and I'll be fed. For three chapters... Paul has been telling and pleading and praying and singing and doing everything he can to point these people to the truth. You are already loved. You already are children of God. You're not slaves and you've left the worst Egypt, death, sin, and Satan The love of God he's been writing has always been the beginning point. God has always done all the work. All you need to do is trust and believe in the promise through Christ. Abraham showed us faith is always before the law. The law shows us our sin. It never actually saves us. It moves us to a savior. God must walk into our hiddenness and he takes off our coverings and gives us a better covering. He says your religion won't do, your spirituality won't do, your secular self-trust won't do. Jesus is the better covering. You Galatians, you ignore these false teachers. You don't need to become more religiously Jewish. Jesus has already accepted you. You're already children. You're already loved. Remember what we heard last week, Galatians 3.26? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Faith. And all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor non-Jew, slave-free, male, female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He says it's true. There, right now, this. But Paul knows. He can sense it. He can feel it. He can hear it in their voice. He can smell the panic in the water. See, these false teachers who believe, by the way, all the right things about Jesus, they've walked in and said, no, 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 you're not children yet. Not yet. No, no. You just need to work a little bit harder. No, no, you need to prove yourself to your dad. And then maybe he'll love you. It's not just promise. It's promise and performance. Then God will love you. Then God will sing to you. Then God will tuck you in. Then God will forgive you. Then he will call you child and treat you like a child. But you better prove yourself first. Performance is the only way to be loved. Paul desperately trying to draw out the poison before it kills continually goes back to the role of the Old Testament and the law because this is how the false teachers are misusing God's word and begins like this in Galatians 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different than a slave. Though he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Now, anyone in Roman times would get this. If a son was the heir to an estate, and the parents died. There were guardians set up, and he'd have partial access to the estate at 14. He'd have full access to the estate by 25, but he could not run the estate till he was 25. And Paul has been teaching us that the guardian, the jailer, the one who oversaw us before Jesus, is the law. Verse 24 of chapter three, so the law was our guardian until Jesus came that we might be justified by faith. And then we wrestled with, well, why in the world would God give us the 10 commandments? If it's all by faith and just trust, why did he give the 10 commandments? He said, well, remember Galatians 3.19, why then is the law given at all? It was added because of transgression. You will never know the belovedness of God unless you know how far you are from him. You'll never think you'll need a savior unless you see how much trouble you're in. The Ten Commandments aren't acts that save you. The Ten Commandments show you how much sin we're in, how much trouble we're in, and no person's okay with God, Jew, non-Jew, spiritual, religious, or secular. He said this in Romans 7:7. what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not, nevertheless. I would have not known what sin was unless it had been for the law. And Paul says, oh, there's so much more. Paul says, look, as Jews... We had a great gift of the law, but the law also was a burden. It enslaved us because it was a perfect standard we could never match. But then in this moment, oh, listen, please. It's like Paul looks over the horizon of humanity and says, it wasn't just us. It's something worse. Jews and non-Jews and secular people and spiritual people and religious people and devout people and undevout people are also under another master, which is worse. We're under these spiritual forces of evil, the worst kind of slave masters, the demonic. It says in verse 4, also, when we were underage, we were in slavery to the elementary spirits of the world. Oh, so not just the law, but all of us by the demonic. I've preached this many times in this series. Let me do it again. The best summary of the human condition is found in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So know it or not, we've all personally sinned and agreed with Adam and Eve's rebellion. We're all marked by sin. We're all involved in this world system that is anti-godly at its core. Oh, and then there's this sentient, malevolent being and one-third of the angels that joined him that continually keep the human family in bondage because they hate all humans because we're made in the image of God. Some of you have sat with your non-Christian friends, good, kind people, and you've explained the gospel and pointed to the history of Jesus' resurrection, and they they don't get it, and you're like, what am I doing wrong? Nothing. See, you don't understand something. They can't see him. You might be a secular person here today or a seeker or a skeptic, and you wonder why you can't embrace Jesus. You can't on your own. Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot... See the gospel. The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who's the image of God. So the law shows you a perfect father who's loving but you can't get back to him and the demonic who hate every one of us no matter your skin color or gender because we're made in the image of God who gives us no rest, no rights, no love, positionally own us and into that impossible moment, into that way worse Egypt, into that darkness, God who is love acts. But when the time A set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Uh, Jesus' coming was not too little, too late, or too early. When God and his sovereignty decided, it happened. He said, now Eden begins to fully reverse, and the journey becomes real. And what's the very first thing that's declared? The very first thing that happens is that God sent his son for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned because already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Notice God just didn't send his Son. But the phrase is, he has sent his Son who is born of a woman. Why does that matter? Well, because actually... Jesus was real, and Mary was real, and God really took on flesh. That's why every Christian from every tradition will confess the Apostles' Creed that declares that we believe that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is what we will celebrate across the world at Christmas. God came for us, and he's without sin, but he is fully human. Not appearing human, not having some illusion. No, he's human. And the virgin birth allows Jesus to be without sin and yet be one of us. Let me quote this quotation. I've done so many times, but it's so important. Christians believe, one wrote, that we're saved only through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that actually imply? It's obvious that Jesus is a man, a human being like all of us, but if he's just a man like the rest of us, he shares in our need for redemption. In other words, he can't redeem us. He's part of our problem. He's not the solution to it. So there must be something essentially different, essentially different between Jesus and other human beings. If Jesus is called and is Redeemer, after all, Christianity has insisted that Jesus is the solution to our problem, not part of the problem. On the other hand, if Jesus is just God and God alone, he has no point of contact with us. He can't relate to those who need redemption. His humanity proves and provides the point of contact. And we arrive at the conclusion Jesus is fully God and fully human if he truly is Redeemer. Let me read these two verses to you again. By the way, these two verses are one of the best summaries of the whole Christian faith. And if you are a seeker or a skeptic or from another faith and you're trying to understand the Christian faith, here it is. But when the time had fully come, that is the set time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, God didn't just send his son, not just born of a woman, but there's so much more. Jesus, he is God's son, one with the father, chose to be born under the law. The one who is the author of the law. The law reflects his nature, just decides to live under it. Why? Because unlike every other human being that has ever existed, he is the only one who never what? Breaks it. Jesus comes and lives the life we're all called to live and never breaks the Ten Commandments, not once, nor any other law. And in that moment, he proves... He is who he is. But not only that, it goes one step farther. He chooses not only to live under the law, he chooses to take on all of our law-breaking and all of our inconsistent love and our inconsistent law-loving experience towards God and places it on himself and becomes our curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. I shared this a few weeks ago. If you were convicted in Old Testament times in Jewish culture of a capital offense, you would be stoned to death. And your mangled body would be placed on a tree as a public representation that the community had rejected you. Oh, and God had rejected you. And Paul comes along and he says, oh, you need to understand that Jesus has taken the curse He has been placed on a pole and has dealt with our ongoing inconsistency. Though he is perfect, he has become legally responsible, though he legally did nothing wrong. And that's why later Paul would pen 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And when Jesus is treated like a sinner, What is the result of this amazing, unfathomable work that we might receive sonship through adoption? Now, the original language of this reads, the sonship. And it's a formal thing. And again, anyone in Roman culture would understand what this meant because much of the time in ancient times, a person who had biological children would still choose an adoptive son to become heir. Julius Caesar did this famously with Octavian and made him the heir to the whole Roman Empire. And so this is the idea that when a father would choose an adoptive son and give him the estate, even though he has his own biological children, it is a declaration that he loves this person the same, and actually this person will model more of who he is even than his own children. And Paul is saying to this wandering and wandering group of churches looking for love they already have. You are already called. You already have the sonship over you. You are adopted. And By the way, if you're like, oh, John, this is just big theological talk. No. This brings us to the pinnacle and the depth of our faith that we as people get to call God, God Almighty, the Creator, the Great I Am, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the same God that met with Moses at the burning bush, the same God that gave the Ten Commandments, the same God who is called the Eternal One, that angels worship forever, the Uncreated One, we get to call Him Dad. Because you are His sons, verse 6, you're under the sonship. God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, and the Spirit calls out, Daddy, Abba, Father. Paul would later expand on this in the book of Romans. In chapter 8, the Spirit you receive does not make you a slave, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. And if we are now God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Himself. The Holy Spirit, so much of the time we're looking for a powerful moment with Him or an experience with Him or new spiritual gifts. You want to know one of the greatest things, actually probably the greatest thing the Holy Spirit does in your life and my life? There is one thing, one place, one declaration, one grounding, one all-consuming, life-giving point. This Spirit enters into us, and He says that we get to call God, Dad. The creator looks upon us through Jesus. If you do not have Jesus, this does not apply to you. If you do have Jesus, then everything, with all your good and your bad, your sin, your family history, your education or lack of it, with a smile, almost indescribable, God says, you are my child. And we just get to say, thanks, Dad. You are no longer a slave. Verse seven, you are God's child. And since you are God's child, God has also made you heir. One of the most profound, unexpected moments for me spiritually in the last year happened actually at the Ajax site during a service. I was sitting over here. This is where I tend to sit at this site. My daughter was going to be baptized, the first daughter of all the grandkids who was confessing Jesus for herself. So it was a big day. And my extended family was here, and she was getting ready. She was probably standing at the wall. I was in pastor mode, thinking about a thousand things. And we were singing the song. We sing here quite a bit. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but what? I'm a child of God. As I was sitting there, suddenly I heard this voice behind me. Very familiar. It was my mom's. My mom, now 69, older, singing, I am no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. And it struck me, not because of the emotion in the moment. I had never thought like this, that my mom is a child of God like that. And I was singing the same song, and my daughter was about to get up on this stage at this site and confess the same truth. And though she's grandmother and I'm son and that's granddaughter, actually, the profound thing of the Christian faith is all three of us are children of the same father. And it was this moment where I understood this is what no other religion gives on earth. This is what no other technology or scientific discovery or philosophy can give. I and my mother and my daughter are children of God, not because we were born into it, because we all discovered the same Savior, because he looked at us and met us first. And this is what Paul's whole point is, his struggle with. And he says, you're not just children, you're already heirs. And so let me just do something for a moment. Let me just summarize everything that Paul has said in Galatians 1, 2, and 3 to the Galatian churches and to you if you're a Christian. In chapter 1 he says you already have the grace of God and you already have the peace of God. There is peace between you and God through Jesus because of what he's done. Jesus has already rescued you from this present evil age which means the devil does not own you, your sin does not define you, and death does not have the final say in you. He's already declared that we are brothers and sisters of the same God, which he has started a family, which means you are saved. In chapter 2, Paul said the whole leadership, Peter, James, John, and others, agreed with his gospel that it is only by Jesus that non-Jews and Jews meet God the Father through faith in Jesus, which he says, you've already done. He has already declared that Jesus loves us personally, and when he was dying, he thought of us by name. In chapter 3, he says, you've already given been given the Holy Spirit, and you already have spiritual gifts, and you've received the love of God in your hearts way before you started thinking or hearing you need to act better or be a better kid or be more religiously Jewish. He has already declared you are a child of Abraham because you have believed just like Abraham did and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed is actually you. You are living this. Jesus has already, he says, redeemed you, already taken the curse of the law for you. We have seen the law. We saw how holy God is. We've cried out for mercy and instead of God saying, I'm not forgiving you, he ran towards us, clothed us, gave us his spirit, and has declared that our history and our sin is not stronger than his love. And then more shockingly said, men, women, Jews, Greeks, slave and free, make up a new family. And he says, this is your heirship. You are children of God. This is it. Stop trying to earn anything. And then it's like Paul stops and he's got this big breath. He says, please, don't go back to slavery. And then he utters these words that are actually so almost un-Jewish, they ripple today. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not gods, the demonic. But now you know God, or rather you are known by God. Wow. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved all all over again to them? Now, here's what he's saying. You're about to start reliving your history when you're all pagans, worshiping Zeus, going to orgies, and were owned by the demonic. You're literally repeating this. Now, the false teachers and even the Galatians would be completely offended, enraged at this moment. Are you saying that obeying the Ten Commandments is no different than worshiping demons? We don't have idols in our homes anymore. We got rid of them. We don't sleep around anymore. We're faithful to our spouses. And if we're single, we're not sleeping around either. Oh, by the way, we don't serve false gods. We're not going to orgies anymore. And Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Paul comes back and says, Oh, You think idolatry is just saying like Zeus is Lord or going to some drunken orgy? No, 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 no. You keep telling me that you think that you can earn God's love even through God-given things. So let me tell you, the Ten Commandments are not evil, but if you think you have the power to use the Ten Commandments to worship God, you have turned God's gift into an idol and you're no different than you used to be when you worshiped and were owned by demons. Now, Sit with this, especially you who have been Christians for a long time. He says, look, you you are observing special days and months and season and years. It's not wrong. Like we found out last week, the Ten Commandments are God-given, but if you use them for the wrong purpose, even the things of God can become idolatry because you actually miss the author of the thing. See, Paul gets us so much more than us. If we doubt that we are loved... If we for a moment start doubting, well, I'm not sure if I'm a child of God and and I'm not sure if Jesus loves me and I'm not sure, then you will go back to slavery, religious, spiritual, sexual, emotional, like that. Richard Lovelace, Lovelace, the famed Christian author, wrote these very difficult words. Christians who are no longer sure if God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual activities, are subconsciously, radically insecure people. Much less secure than non-Christians, by the way, because of the constant bulletin they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the right life they're supposed to be living. Their insecurity will begin to show itself in pride. A fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of everyone else who's not measuring up. They cling desperately to legal and pharisaical-like righteousness, and envy and jealousy and other sin will begin to grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Paul says, you're stuck, you're powerless, you can't move forward, you keep looking backward, you're about to be enslaved. Don't give up on your God-given, Jesus-bought, Holy Spirit-empowered freedom. I fear free. Somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I, I plead with you, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you, my dear children, for whom I again am in the, uh, the pains of childbirth until Jesus is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you right now and change my zone. I'm so perplexed by you. What changed? I didn't change. And the gospel didn't change, and God didn't change, but you, you've changed because you're under a spell. You're under a spell of well-meaning, good, nice Christian people who actually have made the very things of God idols to stop you from being free. I love this church. I love that this church is filled with people week in and week out who are not Christians. I love that Sanctus has skeptics and seekers. I love there's a lot of this while I preach. From other faiths, agnostics, atheists, Christian by tradition. And I would like to do something at this moment. This is not just for all of you at this site and the other sites, everyone for watch, anyone watching online or listening. To you, the profoundly self-sufficient people among us. You who think you're okay and you don't need help. You know, you trust in your work, in your ability or maybe your money or your power, maybe you're really good looking and you can afford good clothing. Maybe you're deeply religious. Maybe you're deeply spiritual and love self-help. And like I said before, maybe you're just a nice Canadian who gives the United Way and is always just nice. You who think you really, really, really don't need help, really. Oh, and to the other side of you, to you who know that you need help, and you have nothing to offer God, and you don't think God cares about you, wants to see you, will see you, and he would never love you. So to so, so those who know they need rescue and think God's never gonna love them, and to those who don't think they need God's rescue and they're, you are your own God functionally, what I want to do at this moment is to offer you something that is not human. Today I hold out to you, not because I own it, because I do not. Everlasting life, eternal adoption, the forgiveness of sins, and love. I'm going to read to you the gospel of the Christian faith. So also, when we were all under age, we were in slavery under the elementary spiritual forces of the world. Someone just said, that's not true of you. Yes, it is true of you. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are now his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And since you are a child, God made you also an heir. If you would dare in this moment, humble yourself and declare that all you trust in is not good enough, or if you would be just as daring and humble yourself and realize that you have nothing to offer, but God still loves you, and you would like to become a child of God, adopted by God, secure an eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and find peace, then would you pray this? And I ask, look, no music, no smoke, no lights, no nothing, just the gospel. Just pray this. And the rest of us who have said this, would you pray alongside of us? Again, wherever you are in the world, and this is what you pray, out loud or in your heart, just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, enslaved to a perfect law I cannot measure up to, under demonic power, sin and death. Have mercy on me, Jesus, sent from God. You obeyed the law for me and took my lawlessness on you. Redeem me today. Make me adopted today. Declare sonship over me, the sonship over me today. Make me a child of God now. Give me that Holy Spirit that guy's talking about now. Let me be able to call you, Dad, today. All the stuff that guy preached on, that airship stuff, I'd like that too. I turn from self-hate or self-trust and say yes, in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that, you're a child of God, and, and you're like, no, I'm not. What else happened? No, no, no. You're a child of God. Now, most of us Hearing this today, have prayed this prayer. We've accepted Jesus, and we love Him. And here's what I'd like to say over the rest of us today. I just want to say verse nine for a moment over us. But now that you know God, or, or rather, you are known by God, you do not need to prove yourself to God. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, he meant it. You do not need to become more Christian or more religious to get God's love or to prove yourself to him. The reason why we teach obeying the Ten Commandments or celebrate big or connect small or walk with Jesus is never to open the door of salvation. It's always after we've said yes. You do not need to prove yourself to God. You can't. Jesus did that for you. There is of others, many, you are flirting with sin and the world online, secretly, publicly, or privately because you're not sure if the Christian faith and the walk is either too hard or worth it. I want to speak the very words of God to you today. Do not go back to the slavery that Jesus saved you from. Do not go back to demonic power. He's better. Do not go back to an immoral life. You will have pleasure for a time. It leads to death. I want to remind you what is true over you now. Because you are his sons and daughters now. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit calls out Abba Father. So here's what I'd like to pray. Holy Spirit, I can't preach this into people. You have to show up. Remind every single Christian within the sound of my voice, assure every single Christian within the sound of my voice that they actually are children of God. Holy Spirit, you've got to walk through history, (laughs) pain, what we did last night, sin, doubt, demonic accusation, worldliness. You have to tell us afresh in this moment from the guts of who we are that we're children of God. Some of us, Holy Spirit, like we've got nothing We can't even speak. We're literally, we feel like we're Christians by fingernails. So as a pastor, I want to pray this over those people, lost children, broken children, doubting children, bored children, wandering and wondering children. It's the old hymn, oh, what peace we forfeit. (laughs) Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer or prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. It says in verse six that the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, before we do. So Holy Spirit, for every Christian, no matter their age, that has no ability, no ability any longer to even say, Father or Dad, they've got nothing left in the tank. Holy Spirit, it is my request of you in this moment that you cry out from within them, Abba, Father, so they will know that they are still children. I pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ that every single lie and fear and insecurity and legalism and prove it in performance that sits in the hearts of your people would be burned away now, in Jesus' name. May this church be free so we never wonder if God loves us. May this church be free so we never go back to slavery in any form. I plead with you, Holy Spirit, to say, Abba, Father, in our church, so, not one person does not know the love that has already been given. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Amen. The best way to respond is communion. Because at communion, one of the beautiful facets of this diamond we call. The Lord's Supper is we are reminded of everything Jesus did, but also we're reminded we are children. And so we're going to pass communion today if, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please don't take this. You've not embraced him yet, but we say it's a great place to meet him. If you're on the run and refuse to submit to Jesus, don't take it. But if you're a struggling Christian, you're doing well or not doing well, take this as it's past, and as you remember the death of Jesus, the blood and the body broken, as you remember his resurrection, just, just, just thank him that you are a child of God, and he will never say to you, I will not forgive you, and he will never leave us and forsake us. Celebrate who you are and what he's done in this moment. So Lord, in this guaranteed place of encounter where Jesus, you by your spirit are going to walk up and down, every site, every row of chairs. Meet us. Transform us. Root out fear, pride, and death. In Jesus' name.